1: Horizon's 2022 data breach investigation report shows a sharp rise in ransomware. Origins of the Chaos ransomware operation, the Goo Loader campaign uses bogus purchase orders. Security researchers are targeted in a malware campaign. Turla reconnaissance has been detected in Austrian and Estonian networks. Ben Yellen describes a content moderation fight that may be headed to the Supreme Court. Our guest is Richard Mellick from Zimperium to discuss threats to mobile security and a ransomware group acts like Robin Hood or not From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 22nd, 2022 Verizon has published its 2022 data breach investigation report, finding that ransomware rose by 13% last year, a greater increase than the previous five years combined. 82% of breaches involve the human element, which encompasses phishing, stolen credentials, misuse, or error. The researchers also found that supply chain breaches were behind 62% of intrusions last year. Verizon writes... There are four key paths leading to your estate, credentials, phishing, exploiting vulnerabilities, and botnets. All four are pervasive in all areas of the DBIR, and no organization is safe without a plan to handle each of them. And while the rise in ransomware features prominently in the report, Verizon notes that ransomware by itself is, at its core, simply a model of monetizing an organization's access. Researchers at BlackBerry have published a report outlining the genealogy of the Chaos ransomware family, detailing six versions of the malware that have been released since it first surfaced in June 2021. BlackBerry found that Chaos has ties to the Onyx and Yashma ransomware strains, although Chaos initially and unsuccessfully claimed to be an offshoot of Ryuk. It wasn't. The false claim was evidently a reach for C2C credibility. Fortinet had earlier tracked Chaos's rise to prominence as its operators declared their adherence to the Russian cause in Moscow's war against Ukraine. BlackBerry notes that Chaos has advanced beyond its beginnings as a relatively basic operation and has now evolved into a flexible, widely available, and difficult-to-track malware operation. Fortinet reports that they have found a phishing email that drops Goo Loader targeting a Ukrainian coffee company. Goo Loader, which is also known as CloudEye and VB Dropper, is used to drop other malware variants. The phishing email presented itself as a purchase order from an oil company in Saudi Arabia with a PDF containing an executable for GuLoader. The attack is unique in that it uses the less common Nullsoft Scriptable Install System, NSIS, a script driven installer authoring tool for Windows, to deploy itself. FortiGuard Labs calls it a medium severity threat for Windows users. Bleeping Computer reports that security researchers were the target of a threat actor using fake Windows proof of concept exploits that infected devices with the Cobalt Strike backdoor. Cobalt Strike is an often abused but legitimate pen-testing tool. The threat actor took advantage of recently patched Windows remote code execution vulnerabilities, presenting themselves as a security researcher who used the fix to inspire two proof-of-concept exploits for the flaw on GitHub. The exploits were quickly found to be fake. Hyperlocal sites have been marshaled by Russian influence operators to normalize the occupation of Ukrainian villages controlled by Russian forces, Cyberscoop reports. They source their story to Detector Media, which says that the effort is being organized over Telegram. Detector Media writes, We managed to find 88 newly created Telegram channels of the occupiers. However, their list is growing. The vast majority of such channels were registered a few days after February 24th. A significant part of local channels was created long before the actual military occupation of the cities, and some of those are the ones that the Russians did not manage to occupy. Conventionally, such channels can be divided into two categories. Those that can act as official sources of the occupiers, that is, such telegram channels post on behalf of the occupiers, for example, inform about humanitarian aid or call for reporting on the movement of Ukrainian military equipment, and those that mimic the media's behavior, publish news about the occupied city or village, but are overfilled with propaganda and misinformation. The content mirrors familiar Russian lines of disinformation, Ukrainian corruption and failure, the Western conspiracy behind the war, the promise of liberation, and so on, The evidence of Russian creation and coordination that Detector Media cites is circumstantial but convincing. Bleeping Computer reports that the Russian threat actor Turla, also known as Snake or Venomous Bear and associated with the FSB, has staged typo-squatting domains for use against Austrian and Estonian targets. The activity so far represents a cyber-reconnaissance phase of battle space preparation, it is, as the Sequoia researchers who discovered it say, a phishing campaign. And finally, The Independent describes research by CloudSec that outlines the operations of the Goodwill Ransomware Group, a gang that, instead of conventional ransom, asks its victims to do something good for the less fortunate. As the threat group's name suggests, and we hasten to say that there's no connection here with the well-known legitimate charity Goodwill, the operators are allegedly interested in promoting social justice rather than conventional financial reasons. The actors suggest that victims perform three socially driven activities in exchange for the decryption key. Donate new clothes to the homeless, record the action, and post it on social media, Take five less fortunate children to Domino's, Pizza Hut, or KFC for a treat. Take pictures and videos and post them on social media. And provide financial assistance to anyone who needs urgent medical attention but cannot afford it. At a nearby hospital. Record audio and share it with the operators. Or so they say. The Independent says it's been unable to determine whether any of those affected have paid it forward or sideways or in whatever direction one pays this kind of ransom. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. mobile security platform developer Zimperium recently released the results of their Global Mobile Threat Report, which analyzes the state of mobile security worldwide. For insights on their findings, I checked in with Richard Mellick, Director of Threat Reporting at Zimperium. So you have your personal device, which is your personal information,
0: which we should still be securing against, and then there's the the corporate-provided device. Well, that corporate provided device, the standard operating procedure right now is to deploy out that device with a mobile device management solution installed on it. And that is your quote-unquote security layer. I am here to tell you, you can quote me on this, mobile device management is not security. It is not capable of protecting against phishing. It is barely capable to detect an alert of a jailbroken or compromised device. You can deploy out policies and say what apps are installed and what apps are not. But what if those apps are compromised? What about sideloading, where it's not going through the official play store? Or somebody goes to a compromised website through a phishing link or an email? Um, What if they're uh, connecting into a compromised network? Those security controls do not exist within mobile device management. And that's what is applied towards employee-owned devices. -hmm. But in the day and age right now, according to our data, sixty-six percent of the smartphones in the enterprise are employee-owned. Fifty-five percent of the tablets are employee-owned. So this massive one in almost one in three—let's just focus on the smartphones—one in three, uh, or sorry, two in three of the devices connected into enterprises are BYOD. So you're not carrying around two devices. That's not happening anymore. You're not deploying out a mobile device management on. Uh, solution onto my personal device. Why? Mm-hmm. Because that's compromising my privacy. Right. I'm not putting my privacy in the hands of somebody I don't know. This is my device. I paid for it. You're not paying the bill. None of that. And I say that even now, if somebody was coming to me and say, come to me and say in order to be employed here, we're going to install mobile device management on your device so we can wipe your device if something was happens. like, absolutely not. I will buy my, a second device that you can do that too. Or mm-hmm. we will work something out. But my personal device is my personal device. So now we have that in that, you know, that problem. Let's go back to what I originally started off with. Techno- technologically, there's not much of a difference between the iPhone and the, and the MacBook or the Android devices and a Chromebook or a Windows device. All these devices are computers. Why are we only applying advanced security solutions to the larger devices that don't fit our pockets when they have? Access to the exact same data as the mobile device that fits in my pocket. And that's where we need to get to. We need to start going and saying, we need security solutions for the applications and the endpoints that we carry. does not matter what it is. And it needs to be an advanced solution that understands what a threat is. And this is not a pitch. This is just the idea of why does my laptop get all the cool security features and my phone does not?
1: But isn't it a partially that the, the mobile operating systems don't allow for this? It'll allow for what? That's
0: a, that's a broad question there, Dave.
1: Well, I mean, they, they don't allow the, the security device to have the global access to the device that I think security apps are used to on a desktop computer.
0: Yes and no. So uh, security devices, security applications do not get kernel access. Uh, That's where the limitation comes. That's the the big difference. And that's fantastic. That's a great security layer. The kernel access is, is a technological limitation for the traditional approach towards endpoint security on a mobile device. That said, there are the other layers of security that can be implemented, such as phishing protection, network protection, application scanning and the likes that can go onto this endpoint, onto this mobile endpoint, and say, okay, you are about to connect to a known malicious network based off multiple vectors of data that's been fed in. Or, hey, this application that you're downloading is a privacy risk. Here's why. Mm -hmm. Uh, That link you're about to click on is going to go to a compromised website or is going to try to collect your information or sideload an application. There are other ways to protect the mobile ecosystems against the threats that are different in some ways than traditional security, but also very similar. Artificial intelligence still exists for the the mobile ecosystems. The idea of what does a threat look like in a mathematical terms can be applied towards application scanning and phishing. Um, and phishing protection, or network scans, and man-in-the-middle attacks. Uh, so there is those software controls that can be installed on the iOS and Android ecosystems. But that that idea, though, is that it's not the exact same as traditional space.
1: You know, based on the information that you've gathered here for this report, what are the take homes? I mean, what, what do you want people to come away from reading this report? to What's the action item here?
0: Take-home is, is that the mobile security space is one that we do not need to be dismissing. What we have are devices that have been forgotten about or accepted in their current state for so long, we have to start re-educating the market. And this report, I hope, is the start of that re-education as we start to build up towards the larger conversation of addressing the full attack surface of everybody from the SMBs, all the way up to the large enterprises. The trends do not lie, the data does not lie. The vulnerabilities, the exploits, the attacks, the trends, the human element that we have all trained against on the traditional desktops, the traditional endpoints are
1: still applicable on the mobile devices. That's Richard Mellick from Zimperium. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat podcast. Hello, Ben. Good to be with you, Dave. So over on Caveat, over the course of the past couple of weeks, actually, we have been tracking some interesting court decisions coming out of Texas and Florida, and these two decisions may be on a collision course here. Uh, They have some policy implications for those of us in cyber. Can you give us the rundown? What's going on here, Ben? Sure. Uh, So we have two
2: separate state statutes that are very similar, one in the state of Texas and one in the state of Florida. The basic idea behind these statutes is to regulate content moderation among big tech platforms. Hmm. So there's this general allegation that the tech platforms are biased against particularly people with a conservative ideology. Hmm. Uh, So what these laws say is it is illegal in the state of Texas to make any content moderation decisions that are biased in terms of uh, their viewpoint or are biased in terms of their politically biased or ideologically biased in terms of their viewpoint. Hmm. So Texas passed uh, a law first. It's House Bill 20. And a district court, so the lowest level of federal court, held that that law was unconstitutional. Basically what they said is Companies like Twitter and Meta and whomever have their own First Amendment free speech rights. Mm. They have the right to make content moderation decisions. Uh, And in the name of trying to foster free speech, what these state legislatures have actually done is restrict the free speech rights of this private entity, these tech companies. I see. So that was the district court decision in Texas. That was appealed by the state of Texas to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and they vacated the district court decision, meaning they superseded it. And as a result, the Texas law is now uh, in place. Hmm. It is illegal in the state of Texas currently to uh, have viewpoint discrimination in one's content moderation decisions. Hmm. Uh, This was a big surprise. We didn't get much from the Fifth Circuit in terms of its reasoning. Uh, all they said was that the decision of the lower court, the district court, had been enjoined, meaning it had been stopped. Okay, uh, But there was no explanation as to how they saw the constitutionality of this issue.
1: Now, there were a lot of raised eyebrows from legal experts and scholars and so
2: forth, right? Yeah, it was rather shocking. I mean, I don't think anybody thought I, – I think a lot of scholars thought that the purpose in terms of these state legislators was just to make a point about content moderation Knowing that the courts would strike it down. I see. Uh, but you wanted to get the political message out there, pass a law saying that you think that these platforms are biased uh, and make the courts do something about it. I mean that's right. A, right. a well-worn tactic of uh, political advocacy. But yeah. the Fifth Circuit – Shocking, everybody said, okay, we're going to let this law
1: go into place. (laughs) Don't throw me in the briar patch. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Uh, The tech companies seemingly right now really have no idea how to comply with the statute. They don't know how it's going to be enforced. Okay. Um, They are unsure if they're going to be sued for their content moderation decisions, which decisions they're going to be sued for. Uh, I think there is a bit of a panic among these tech companies Uh, And as a result, they have appealed this decision to the United States Supreme Court. Okay. The Supreme Court could step in at any time and vacate the decision of the Fifth Circuit. They have not yet done so, um, but that's certainly an an option that's out there.
1: But that takes us to Florida.
2: That takes us to the great state of Florida. Yeah. Uh, So Florida passed a similar law, Senate Bill 7072. Uh, This bill is nearly identical. It uh, made its way up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the appeals court for the Southeast United States, And that court came to the opposite conclusion, saying that this type of ban on viewpoint-based content moderation uh, is unconstitutional. The state of Florida and, for that matter, the state of Texas have tried to argue that even though these are private companies, they are so-called common carriers. Hmm. Generally, our government is allowed to regulate private companies if they are common carriers where... They are the entity that fills some sort of service mm-hmm. on behalf of the government. So whether that's transportation, something like the railroads, who had a monopoly on transportation in the in the 1800s, yeah. or something like telecommunications company, where there right. really is no government institution who's performing these functions. So the common carriers step in and it's kind of – uh, their prerogative to enforce constitutional rights. Okay, That's the argument that Florida and Texas uh, have been making. What the 11th Circuit said in this decision is these are not common carriers. These are private companies, and they have the right to police their own services as they see fit. Hmm. That is a vestige of their free speech rights. Content moderation itself is a form of free speech. And one really interesting element of this decision was the fact that critics can even claim that they're being discriminated against by social media platforms. The fact that Florida legislators can do that is evidence itself that the companies are First Amendment speakers uh, in terms of uh, how our our Constitution works. Hmm. Um, One CNN reporter who was reviewing this decision Called it the judicial equivalent of pointing out a quote self own, which I thought was <laughs> uh, very well put.
1: So this this is, could be
2: on its way to the Supreme Court then. Absolutely. So I think we are on a collision course here. Uh, we have two judicial circuits who have come to opposite conclusions as to the constitutionality of these types of laws. I don't believe Florida and Texas are going to be the only states who try some types of some type of regulation on big tech content moderation. Mm. Uh, so we might see more cases like this. And because we have a disagreement among circuits, I think it's very likely that this is an issue that's going to make its way to the Supreme Court. Now, they could weigh in at any time and say the Fifth Circuit went over its skis uh, and that's that decision is, is going to be vacated. The district court decision would go back into effect and the law uh, would no longer be uh, in effect. Um, Or they could hear either of these cases on the merits, and I think we might see that next Hmm. year. There might be oral arguments where we have a discussion about whether these platforms have, as private actors, a constitutional right to free speech or whether they can be regulated like common carriers. Hmm. All we know so far from the Supreme Court is that one justice, Justice Thomas, has at least entertained the idea that big tech companies – can be considered common carriers and can be subject to this type of regulation. Hmm. We don't really know uh, how the other eight justices feel on this issue, although I will say that Justice Thomas is part of the ideological majority on the Supreme Court. So it's certainly not out of the question that the Fifth Circuit holding on this would would prevail. So we are in limbo, but I do think uh, this is headed to some sort of final uh, resolution of the Supreme Court.
1: All right, stay tuned. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. the Cyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Rachel Gelfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio,